0: Well, bow your heads with me a moment, close your eyes, shut out any distraction, so that we can speak to this Lord. In fact, with our eyes closed, see him in our mind's eye, coming to where we are. So this God who gives us life and breath, in whom we live and move and have our being, just as we have heard read to us, is here with us. Thank you, Lord, that you know us perfectly well. We're not a mystery to you, and even while we try to hide so often from you or confuse what's going on in our minds because we've got some ideas that are different than yours, meet with us now, and by your own Amazing, wonderful, loving communication. Please take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. Shape our thinking, Lord, our deciding. And with all that, Lord, take our hearts, maybe feeling somewhat cold and indifferent at this very moment, but please, again, mercifully, lovingly, inspire us, set us on fire with love for yourself, Lord Jesus. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, along our way to the 20th anniversary, which we've celebrated... We are encouraging you, as you heard announced, to go get your photograph taken. Do you know, we waited until this time of the year so that you could be tanned and look good. How would you like it in January? Looking pasty, weak, feeble, pathetic. Right now, as I'm looking out, you guys look radiant. Go radiate in front of that camera, will you? Whether you're a member or not, if you're making your worship our church, you know, like is not the church, but your place of worship, get in that anniversary, 20th anniversary edition. You actually get a free copy of it, each family. And one free 8x10 glossy real photograph not one of your cheap printouts but the real deal so that's not bad they may coax you to buy a few more that's their game but uh, it's a great opportunity some of my better photographs were taken on these occasions and I've got all the directories, by the way, going back for like nearly 40 years, even into the previous church that I pastored. So when I see a name that I somewhat recognize, and some of you are those names, I go back looking through those directories, say, I know that name, I know that name, who is this person? And sure enough, in fact, I did a wedding yesterday in the sanctuary. It was a big wedding. Can you imagine this? Those of you who pay the bills. There were ten groomsmen and ten bridesmaids. Only one couple. (laughs) And a little guy who was the ring bearer and a little girl who was the petal scatterer. What a deal. I mention that because This church really is an amazing cross-section of people. We're not monochrome. We're not all the same kind of people. But we've come to know and love the same Jesus. And he has transformed our lives no matter what we're like ourselves. That's the miracle of it. He changes us, not to make us all like the same sausage coming out of the sausage machine. Maybe I should say hot dog here in America. But according to how he's created us, his spirit comes into us, and we become more than we ever could ever imagine. We're talking today about the power that makes a nation great. Well, you don't change a nation unless you change individuals. Unless individuals get it, nothing changes. So that power is individual, personal, and dynamic, and progressive in the sense that, through us, the Lord touches other lives. I am who I am, because the Lord used and still uses other people to help shape me. Not to make me like you, how miserable that would be if you were all like me. How miserable would it be if we were all like you? Just think of that. You couldn't escape yourself. Everywhere you look, there'd be another you. Wouldn't be very happy. So, Paul, in his transformation, a genius, a powerful intellect, a leader an educated religious Jew, when he gets it that Jesus is alive, it doesn't matter where he is or what he's up to, that different Paul, that Paul who has now been made new by the Lord in his life, begins to touch other lives. Even when he's standing around, apparently doing nothing. Look at page 2 in your service sheet, if you... Uh, because it gives you the text in front of you, most everything I'm going to be talking about. And look how it begins, verse 16 of chapter 17, while Paul was waiting. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy. The previous verse, if you had, if you've got your own Bibles, you can see it. Verse 15 says this, the men who escorted Paul, brought him to Athens, and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So the folks who brought Paul down to Athens were left with the message from Paul to take back to Silas and Timothy, as soon as you're able, come and join me. They'd been left behind in a town called Berea, where God was doing some remarkable things. And while Paul moved on, Silas and Timothy stayed behind to kind of follow up what had been stirred up. So Paul's in Athens, and while he was waiting there, I could name that the sermon, while he was waiting, that is for them, Silas and Timothy, what happened? While he was standing around, waiting, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So what he was looking at, the, the uh, old King James version, that one of the first trans- I, I think maybe close to the first translation of the Bible into English, was under the leadership and authority of King James I in England. That's why they call it the King James version of the Bible. And it was multiplied in English and printed in English Elizabethan English, uh, the old-fashioned English. But it says he was stirred in his heart, in his spirit. Stirred. Here it says, concerning his attitude at what he saw, that he was distressed, greatly distressed. Do you get upset with what you see around and about today in our country? What you see on your iPhone? What you see on the television or... Just going on on the streets. You concern what your kids are learning in school? Do you see what's going on? You concern with what the courts, the politicians are doing? What do you do about it? Do you stew? That's S T W. Stew. Sort of just let it all percolate in you and contaminate your soul and your spirit, you get stirred. You get full of anguish at what you see and what's going on. What do you do with that? Well, look what Paul did. He engaged. Verse 17. So he, so, meaning pointing back to what was going on in his spirit, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. Now, the God-fearing Greeks... And this turns up several times in this NIV translation, New International Version translation. They are Gentiles, or Greeks in this case, in Greece, who had joined themselves to the Jewish worship service because they liked what they saw in terms of it making sense of life. So these are God-fearing Greeks. And they're in with the Jewish people, in their synagogue. So Paul goes to what was church for him and addresses them. And he didn't just play church. And this is where the expansiveness of his communication led to some other things. Look at what else he did. As well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now the marketplace was where everything happened. It was a big square like the piazzas in Italy. It was where life went on when you left your home and came out your little street and you got into this large open space. So there was shopping, there was carts of food and uh, all kinds of things. Discussion. It crossed my mind that it was very much like our iPhones to that generation. They wanted to get connected with some other place, whatever's going on, what people are thinking, their Facebook what's happening in their lives, who they were tweeting and all that stuff, that happened in the marketplace. That's where they went. So they could engage and see what's happening. And, and they loved talking religion and or philosophical ideas. So look at what happens here. There in the marketplace, he ran into Epicurean, this is verse 18, and Stoic, philosophers now the epicureans had as their bottom line if you wanted to describe them they were the people who lived for pleasure and avoided pain what Does it sound like today live for pleasure and to avoid pain pleasure was the greatest goodness the Stoics, we, that, that word's come over into our language when somebody acts like a is Stoic about circumstances in their life. The Stoics were different all again. For them, they wanted to, to avoid the passions that run with success and exuberance and the despairing passions that go with pain and suffering. They wanted to be control freaks. Controlling themselves in particular. Not giving anything away. So that even when things were tough, they could, as the British would say, maintain a stiff upper lip. That's like not to get carried along with their emotions. So those were the Stoics, and those were two powerful influences. They start arguing with Paul... What he's saying doesn't seem to make much sense to them, but look at what he was really saying. He seems to be advocating, this is the back end of verse 18, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So that's his bottom line. Namely, Jesus which is good news, what he did in dying on the cross for us to pay for all our crap and our filth, one side. And because he rose from the dead, he's conquered death. He's alive forevermore, present here with us spiritually, so that we can entrust ourselves to him. The good news of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Do you know what that led to? If he'd have been down in Mellon Square doing this, it's like they took him to a meeting of the city council. Because that's who the Areopagus is. This group takes him, look at verse 19, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus took place at the base of what we now call the Acropolis in in Athens. Paul had been walking around the old Acropolis when all those temples, those ruins that you now see were absolutely crisp, beautiful, magnificent. That's where he saw all the idol worship and all the idols. And when he starts speaking to the people down in the marketplace, they take him to a smaller hill called Mars Hill. There are some churches take that title. They take it from its very passage where the Areopagus, which was the leaders of the city of Athens, 30 of them, 3 times 10, 30 of them, met to consult, consider, whatever was the business of the day. And these very influential philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, took Paul to the leadership of the city. And all this... While he was waiting, standing around. Paul was standing around waiting for these guys to arrive, but he wasn't sort of thinking oh, 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 about them. He was looking around and saying, Whoa, this is a mess. And as he starts addressing the mess, they take him to the leaders of the mess. And now he's speaking to the leadership of the city. I've read several biographies of Dr. Billy Graham. And he has addressed and spoken to most of the leaders of the world in his day. And in chatting with him personally on one occasion, not to show off, but he was looking for some advice from me. (laughs) You know that wasn't true. I said, aren't you intimidated when you sit down and speak with the president of this country or the king of this country, I mean, he had tea with the Queen of England back when I was a teenager, met with Sir Winston Churchill. I mean, he was, and he was only a young guy in his 30s in those days. He was meeting all these top draw English people. I said, weren't you ever uh, intimidated to the point that you backed off from what you had to say, what was in your heart? And this is what he said, almost word for word, he said, I would be afraid if I did that, that God would turn my lips to clay and that he would take his hand off me. So he always took opportunity to speak up for the Lord no matter who was his audience. That's Paul. He didn't back down. He went for it. In fact, look at the words that's used here. Uh, May we... No, this is the close of verse 19, what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we want to know what they mean. So verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So he kind of flattered them. For as I walked around looking carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. That was his touchstone. He was going to take that idea of an unknown God and say, this God who you say you don't know, I'm going to come and tell you about. But that's not what he said exactly. Look at this, because that's where the power is. He said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. So I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. That word proclaim is a strong word. It's not like I'm going to share some other ideas. Proclamation is an a very direct means of communication. You see the way I'm speaking to you. You got any you know that I'm really speaking to you and that I have some conviction about what it is I'm saying here. Well Paul, rather than in some sort of mealy mouth, sort of nonchalant, like didn't want to look like he knew what was going on and sort of put his hands in his I don't know if he had pockets on his whatever he wore in those days, but yeah I'm you know, it's kind of like you hear guys stand up and say it's kind of like uh you know and they it's like we don't want to say it like we want to say it's kind of like you know it wasn't kind of like anything when he spoke it was exactly what he meant to say he was proclaiming do you know there is power in boldness not belligerence not ignorance offensive behavior But good old fashioned, straight ahead, I'm telling you the truth. (laughs) Whenever you hear a politician say, to make myself clear, and then you listen, you say, yeah, brother, yeah, that's very clear. Like you don't believe anything they say. Anyway, so he's proclaiming. And what he does is start off with this God that they call the unknown God, that was his connection. And who you say is unknown, that God I'm going to make known to you. I'm going to proclaim to you. Why could he say that? Because our God has revealed himself. This isn't speculation. This isn't all these chaps and chapesses chatting around in the marketplace, talking to each other about, well, I've got this idea. Oh, and you've got that idea. And listen to what he says. It's not that kind of conversation God has made himself known. And the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. Because he came amongst us in Jesus, spoke to us so that when Jesus spoke, he said the words that I speak are mine. I'm speaking from the Father. He said, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When you are connected to me, you're connected to the Father. The Father and I are one. So the ultimate revelation, and the, rever- the ultimate revelation of God's love is God so loving the world that he gives us his son. That's a revelation. It's not just an action on God's part. It is that. It's powerful. But in it, what is he revealing of himself? That he loves us. Loves us enough to send his son to die for us. What kind of love is this? I was telling the guy who was getting married yesterday that he's to love his bride. I said it in front of a couple of hundred people. You're to love your wife, your bride, your wife, she's about to become, to love her like Jesus loves you. How does Jesus love you, I asked him. And then I told him, because he wasn't like he's was going to have a conversation with me at his wedding, that Jesus loved him enough to die for him. Laid down his life for him. He couldn't love you more. He couldn't give you more. He gave himself. What's it mean to love your wife? To lay down your life for her. I said, you want a great marriage? That's where you begin. You love her like Jesus loves you. And I said similar words to her. And I don't want to preach that sermon because one of these days you're going to come to me and get married and I'll say it to you again. That's how much God loves us. That's a revelation. God revealing himself, laying it all out there. And Paul got to know this Jesus because he came back to life. Was resurrected from the dead. And he, got, he met Jesus, surrendered to Jesus, and became an advocate and proclaimer of Jesus. This God that you say you don't know is the God I'm going to make known to you. Now let me just stop right there and say I'm going to give a kind of a Mars Hill 21st century talk, speech, proclaim, proclamation, right now. That is as if I were speaking to the skepticism or the agnosticism. You realize that when you say you don't know God, that's an agnostic comment. The word agnostic means I don't know. That's literally what it means, I don't know. Gnosis is to know, knowledge. Agnosis, like agnostic, is I don't know. We've got a lot of self-proclaimed I don't know people. Actually, there is a commitment in our society today, coming up through the educational circles of our universities in the West, to say you can't know. It's committed to not knowing. It's not just I don't know. It's a commitment not to know. Because they don't believe you can know. And so they, are, they say they're agnostic. And I keep saying to you an agnostic is really an atheist who hasn't got the guts to say he's an atheist. Because the end result of being an agnostic is to act like an atheist. Because you don't know, so you behave like you don't know. And therefore God has no influence in your life. And you're behaving like an atheist. Like there is no God in your life. Because you can't know him. So there's no really big difference other than you've got different labels. Listen to this conversation. Back when I was a young guy with a band. Now I have to tell you this. That is like yesterday to me. Got it? When you look at me, it doesn't look like Yesterday. When all my troubles were so far away. It doesn't look like yesterday. But it feels like it to me. And I was undercover. I was already theologically trained, uh, ordained, served a couple of churches as a youth minister in England. Was hanging over, out over here with my guitar and so you get into conversations with students or you're listening on their conversations because there was a lot of it in those days. Immense reaction on the university campuses with what was going on in Vietnam. The guy used to sing with me, had to go fly helicopters in Vietnam. So I lost my kind of Simon and Garfunkel buddy. I hear this conversation where a chap standing amongst students, every time whatever any student said he would ask this question. Where are you coming from when you ask that question? He always pre- prefaced it. Hey man, where are you coming from when you ask that? So I listened to this for about five minutes. And then I said to him, hey man, where are you coming from when you ask that question? He said, I don't know. So, and I knew the game he was playing. Immediately I knew his game. So I asked him, how, well, how do you know you don't know? What do you think he said? I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I don't know that I don't know. So what do you think I asked him? How do you know you don't know that you don't know? I don't know that I don't know that I don't know that I don't know. I could be out and across the parking lot adding on the I don't knows. And I knew what his game was. He was deliberately saying he didn't know uh, therefore reducing the conversation to idiocy. A non-rational, non-intellectual response to confound the issue. Because I knew and he knew that if he ever admitted how it was he knew he didn't know he'd have to engage in a intelligent conversation. And he had the sense that he'd be dead meat if he ever did that. Agnosticism. Deliberate. One of the gods, it is the big god, they had a god just like this in Greece, and I've seen images of it. It's sex. So Aphrodite. And they made images in their mind's eye of Aphrodite. And it turns out to be They thought it looked beautiful and sexy, but it's a female body that's all breasts. Like their big sex symbol. They're still there, not upon the Acropolis, but you see them in museums around Greece. I've been there, I've seen them. Sex, that's our primary God today. Don't you mess with my sexual tastes my sexual behavior, whether it's heterosexual, whether it's bisexual, or homosexual. Don't you mess with my sexual preferences, my behaviors. It's like hands-off. Denny Patton was speaking here not long ago, who's the creator of the silver ring thing. I'm wearing that silver ring right here. Encouraging ch- teenagers to commit themselves to sexual purity so that they can give themselves as sexually clean and pure to their husband or wife when they get married. And the idea of this ring is that since so many adolescents have already been sexually promiscuous, and they're almost as bored and messed up with it, just like the, the Greeks who were going to the Jews to find out how to live in the synagogue... They wanted some other way to live than the kind of calloused obesity and uh, sexual promiscuity that was reigning in Greece at that time. They had thousands of temple prostitutes. They turned their sex into an act of worship in a temple. Seriously. It's very little different for us today. So what we can get on our iPhones, what we can talk about, Clubs that we belong to, behaviors that we manifest. Sex is the driver, whether it's fashion, how we wear our clothes, how we present ourselves. It's like God, a God, an idol. So you start talking to students again about Jesus and how he can transform people and change their lives. Change our society. The power that makes a nation great. One person at a time communicated to the next person. I was with my band at the Kent State University several weeks before the shootings of the students there, for those of you who are old enough to remember it. Shot dead on campus by National Guard. Armed National Guard. Because the fear was some of these students, weathermen they were called, were armed. So I'm performing several weeks before that all happened with my band on campus, open concert, and when we're done and we've talked about Jesus, first half secular music to draw them in, second half sounding like the first half, but we're talking about our faith and what God's done in our lives, and then we talk about that, and then ask them to sign cards if they will, if they want to know more about it. We would leave a campus with we we'll leave the campus with them because there was Christian leadership on the campus with something like 400 or so personally signed and addressed and with telephone numbers, no cell phones in those days, kids who'd signed up to know more. That gave birth to something called what they call now CCO, Coalition for Christian Outreach. Today there are several hundred staff of that little organization that started right here in Pittsburgh scattered out around at least the northern states in the USA. It's powerful what's going on. So this student, afro, bandana, bell-bottom jeans, big leather belt and buckle, came up to me and said, hey man, where are you at? After we've done our concert and spoken about the Lord. I said, did you hear what we had to say? He said, yeah, man. I said, what did you think? He said, "The only way you're going to change this society is keep the crap, kick the crap out of it." Except to use the other word. And I thank the Lord for this because I remember like yesterday the answer He gave me, the Lord gave me to give to Him. I said, "Hey, man, has it crossed your mind that you can restack the crap?" I used His word, politically. Re distribute the wealth amongst it organisationally and when all is said and done you've got the same basic raw material crap and I used his word he said hey man that's heavy (laughs) and then he said because he didn't know what to say after that because he couldn't disagree so you can kick it around reshape it and what are you left with? It. <laughs> he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll kick the crap out of it and you can put it get back together your way. Because he was committed to some kind of rebellious act. And I said, don't you realize that what we're talking about is the power of Jesus to change you from the inside. I said, outside of my knowing Jesus, I'd be full of crap. I'd be as crappy as the next guy. But Jesus changes that. That's what he's about. That's the power. He changes that. So I don't know where you're coming from right now, one at a time. But Jesus is the power to change all that. So it's about Jesus. And he is alive. He comes back to that. What was Paul speaking about in the marketplace? He wasn't speaking to Molly, the leader of the band, to quote another Beatles song. He was speaking about Jesus, the good news of Jesus, and the resurrection, that is, of Jesus. And that Jesus is here. Let's talk to him. So you've got stuff in your life that you'd like to hand over to him that he might transform you. Get real with Jesus. There's nothing you're up to whether in your head or your heart or with your life, that he doesn't know about and hasn't, in dying on the cross and then having been killed on our behalf, bearing all the judgment we deserve, walked out living, powerful, present everywhere by his Spirit. There's not a thing that he can't handle. Not a failure he can't redeem that is rescue back not a life that he can't fill with optimism as depressed as you may be whatever's defeating you warping you he has the power and he loves you so that you can come to him do it now In your own heart, say to him, Lord, I need you. Not only do I need you, but I want you. I want you to come into my life. To clean it up. To reorder my life. To get rid of the filth. And the stuff that I'm disgusted with. To deal with my heart, my memories, the stuff I'm disgusted with, the shame of it all, the waste of it all. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for a chance to begin again, right here with you. Please come into my very life, to the depths of my soul, my spirit. And reorient me to yourself, to love you, to be like you, to follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for a new beginning. Amen.